Welcome to Making It, a historian of the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to not play Civilization V all day and instead study for his comprehensive exams. These next two weeks, as I prepare for the actual final exams, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be asking myself really big questions. In part, this is because I think that if I have answers to super big questions in my head when I go into the exam, and if the examiner asks me something I don't really know, I can instead shift the uh, actual conversation to something I do know. Today and tomorrow, we'll be working through big ideas on my list about organizational sociology. So this particular big question is about how organizations uh, can be used as a topic for history. Why, you might imagine someone asking me, are you spending so much time thinking about this alien object of study, the organization? What does that do for history? I think that not only does the study of organizations give us new questions, uh, it gives us a new way of looking at how the modern world came about that doesn't focus on science and technology, instead focuses on how people organize themselves uh, into groups. Furthermore, it helps us to break away from some of the preoccupations that historians have identified as giving a biased focus of history. Looking at organizations which often cross national boundaries can help us tell stories that are not reliant on the state or on the story of a particular nation. Furthermore, organizations often come with uh, you know, self-contained archives, meaning that studies of organizations can, to some degree, uh, work against problems of selection bias. Finally, looking at organizations can help us break out of our uh, you know, little silos where some historians look at politics, other historians look at culture, and still other historians look at technology. When we look at organizations, all of these uh, different views are gathered into one field. So I'm going to do this episode by focusing on each one of those things in turn. First, I'm going to talk about how a study of the history of organizations gives us a new problematic. By problematic, I mean a set of questions that can help us advance study. Then I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about how the study of organizations can help historians break out of geographical biases, selection biases, and biases of interest. Finally, I'm going to just suggest some areas of study that a history of organizations might push us towards. So the study of the history of organizations asks a big question. And that question is, why is the modern world so full of organizations. If you look around your daily life, you will notice that organizations touch most every single part of it. Not only do you probably sell uh, half of your waking hours to an organization, and thus for half of your waking hours or more act as an agent of an organization, uh, most all of your food 
is produced by an organization. And if you happen to grow that food, it's likely that the fertilizer and the seeds and the hoes were produced by organizations. Not only that, but the entertainment that you consume is produced by an organization. The education that you receive is produced by an organization. Um, the help that you get from a psychologist, that psychologist might be acting as an individual, but they are certified not only by a university, which is an organization, but a professional medical board that's an organization, and by a state medical agency, which is also an, 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 an organization. What makes this organization of the modern world so curious is that if you went back in time in 1700, organizations would be few on the ground. Uh, the only big organizations were the state, and mostly that was the tax provisioning offices and the things that waged war, and uh, the church. Beyond that, there were very few large-scale organizations, even medium organizations. Most uh, things were bought and sold by individuals or partnerships or through uh, landed estates. But the history of organizations has mostly been done by business historians or historians of capitalism who focused just on companies, on for-profit things, on things in the private uh, sphere, which is an incomplete story because organizations touch everything. The organization of the world, to me, uh, seems to account for a lot of the big facts about modernity that trouble us. Our dependence on wages, uh, the fact that profits are uh, grabbed by small groups of people, that the slice of the pie of productivity gains are you know, consumed only by a tiny proportion of humanity. Um, organizations also seem to socialize us, to act in particular ways that are good for organizations. Um, you know, in school, you are taught to come to work at a, a particular time, sit at a desk, uh, work with papers and pencils, obey rules, be orderly, all of the things that make you a good organizational person. Organizations also seem to be central in creating divisions in societies, not only by uh, what our market researchers amongst us might call market segmentation, which is the process of figuring out the different groups of people in a particular market so you can pitch to them, but also uh, organizations seem to create difference through uh, not only collecting information, but also through telling people the kind of person that they are. Historians are really well-placed uh, to change the history of organizations in really important ways, because the current history of organizations has been written mostly by people who care about business and capitalism, mainly in America. I'll give two examples. Alfred Chandler is a, a great whipping boy for this because he is uh, one of the clearest, uh, most well-researched and limited uh, business historians out there. And he, amongst all the great things that he says happens in the 19th century with the rise of big business in America, two big things really stand out. One of these is the fact that uh, the firm becomes multi-divisional. Rather than just having a single unit that does business, instead, the business is separated out into mostly autonomous units that have their own rules, regulations, that work relatively independently from the central authority. What the central authority does is it doesn't matter about what the divisions are doing by and large. Instead, it sets strategy, makes particular interventions when they're needed, gives money, uh, does stuff like that. And Chandler says that this happens in the late 19th century. 
Similarly, Chandler argues that these really big companies vertically and horizontally integrate, which means that they move further along into the production process. They buy up land, uh, uh, they start to buy raw materials, they get involved in marketing, and that this helps them manage the scale of their businesses. However, both of these moments, which Chandler says are fundamental late 19th uh, century stories that happen in American capitalism, actually have deep antecedents in 18th century uh, British political history. But because people of Chandler's ilk don't read deeply into 18th century British political history, they are missed. Big example of this is the East India Company, which in the 18th century, we're told by Emily Erickson, is actually organized along what seems like a multi-divisional structure. Uh, rather than having a central authority that manages every single thing about the company, uh, the East India Company is run like a multi-divisional company. The factors that the East India Company uh, employs are by and large generally independent, except for some oversight by a central authority which sets structure and strategy and stuff like that. And this, furthermore, is what Emily Erickson thinks gives the East India Company its power, not its uh, you know, ability to uh, push force in particular places, but rather its ability to do business in a dispersed network that gets it a ton of information about markets and goods. Similarly, the British Admiralty has horizontal and vertically integrated food provisioning, again, like 150 years before Chandler identifies the first vertically integrated food companies in the U.S. Uh, they do it because they need to buy a ton of grain to make bread and beer and biscuits, and they want to deal with large organizations, large farms that are just simpler to buy and sell from because of the lack of transaction costs with them. But because we don't know a lot about the organizational history of Britain at this time, because organizational historians have not been looking in these places for examples of the development of how organizations work, we don't know how these developments went on. We don't know if uh, the multidivisional company of the East India Company was just a flash in the pan. We don't know if there were other kinds of transnational organizations that had similar sorts of structures. We don't know if there were business people who were inspired by the victualling office and the admiralty to make their own kinds of vertically integrated companies. It's noteworthy that some of the vertically integrated companies in Britain um, were brewing companies. And it's also noteworthy that this is all happening in Britain in the field of politics. And why that's noteworthy is that the organizational historians usually are working under the problem of explaining why Britain didn't have organizational innovations. The whole idea of a lot of this uh, uh, comparative organizational history is to explain why, even though Britain got the Industrial Revolution, it was Germany and the US that got the second Industrial Revolution, which included the big businesses that now mark the modern world. But if we look at it in this way, it looks like a very different story. Why did Britain develop all of these organizational forms and then how did those organizational forms diffuse throughout the rest of the world?
And if we look at it like this, I think that what we're going to see is that a lot of innovation is actually driven by people taking bits of some organizational forms and transporting them into other organizations. But this is, you know, rarely seen because people don't tend to see organizations as diverse as clubs and churches and uh, political parties and businesses and uh you know, uh, street organizations as being deeply related. So now I'm going to turn to how this view of organizations might help historians deal with some of the problems that they've been struggling with over the past couple years. One problem is geography. Historians now know that history does not take place in national lines. The history of America is not just the history of America. It doesn't just stop when there's a border. Instead, people cross the border all the time, and there's a lot of trends that just are bigger than nations. But because uh, the discipline of history rose up in the 19th century when one of the big goals was to tell the story of the nation back to itself so it would have some idea of what it stood for, historians are by and large uh, organized along uh, national lines. I study British history. I am interested in obviously things far beyond Britain, but I'm being trained in uh, particularly, uh, I don't know, parochial matters of British history because when I am called to teach, I will be teaching British history, not history of the Industrial Revolution, not history of the environment. I will be a British historian. However, Organizations give us a template of how we can research these transnational phenomenon without breaking the bank, without um, looking far beyond uh, a single scholar's ability to look. Because organizations, like people, like the processes we're curious about, do not respect borders. Uh, there are a lot of very well-heeled organizations, like the East India Company. Um, we can also think of the organizations of the Marshall Plan or the UN, or multinational corporations of the 20th century, or um, the ways that particular organizational forms go between uh, international bureaucracies. There's lots of ways that we can look at this, but by looking at single organizations, we can tell transnational history without uh, resorting to it being global history, without it being so big that junior scholars or people in underfunded institutions can't study it. Furthermore, uh, I think that the study of organizations helps with selection bias. One of the problems that historians deal with all the time and we don't talk about is that our archives are pretty limited. A lot of times they're organized by the nation state and so they, you know, tell the story of the nation state sometimes. Um, but we, we're very uh, aware that there's a lot missing out of them. Um, the poor are often completely voiceless. Women, illiterates, people who didn't have access to the paper that, you know, makes the record. Studies of organizations can sidestep this because by looking at everything in the organization, you can see traces of the people who might be, you know, less uh, uh, well-heeled, who might be less high status, who might be less likely to leave traces on a traditional archive. Finally, I think that the study of organizations can do a lot to bridge some of the methodological divisions within history itself. Uh, 
one of the big things that people talk about is the split between social and cultural history. I am a little bit of both. I like social history, it's quantitative nature, it's rigor, it's focus on uh, people who might not be uh, well represented in, in the archive. Uh, and I'm also definitely a cultural historian. I'm, I'm interested in the way that people do things, how people accord meaning. I'm interested in different kinds of sources. And I'm interested in, frankly, interesting writing that tells stories about people. But it's hard to combine these two sometimes. And in fact, cultural history is often uh, you know, portrayed in its own historiography as a writing as a, as a rising out of a critique of social history. Organizational history might be able to bridge this gap by giving clear points of comparison about how these kinds of differences are manufactured, about how people come to have meaning about the things that they care about. And we can look at that in sometimes in a quantitative manner through the archive of the organization itself. So there's a lot of room for study. I think that we can um, look at the rise of civil society. That's my big organizational interest. I think that civil society connects up with all of the organizations that we'd be otherwise curious about. The state, uh, the private market, religion, civil society is connected to them all. And I think a key driver of how these organizations uh, expand. Um, we can also look at the organizational world of particular people. Um, so we can see, for example, in Hall's argument in Organization of America, uh, that we see a group of people, the Standing Order, who are these New England elites who have control of American politics in the late 18th century. When they lose control of politics after uh, we have Jefferson and then um, who's the guy with the hatchet who uh, Donald Trump loves, Andrew Jackson, um, when the New England Standing Order loses their political power, they transmit it organizationally into groups of elite colleges that change their political power into moral power, that, that insist that elites go through this process of socialization where they get the same kinds of uplifting moral uh, uh, education that the uh, New England elites hoped that the state would give. And so here, by looking at one class of people, one group of people, we can see a similarity in uh, attitude and in strategy and in biography in different kinds of organizations. Another way is to look at an organizational field, to look at all of the organizations that surround a particular uh, group of people or a particular place. I'm hoping to do this in a study of the Midlands in, in, in Britain, the organizational field of the Industrial Revolution, not just the companies that led to industrialization, but the clubs and the churches and the uh, state agencies and the vestry councils and the parishes and everything, all the organizations that people belong to. A final way that we might look at this study of organizations is by looking at organization producing organizations. These organizations that seem to teach people how to make organizations. My favorite, of course, is the coffee house and the club. Uh, I think also we could look at the Marshall Plan, at universities, at startup incubators, and as, at dissenting sects. And I'm sure that as we look at these, we'll notice commonalities between all of them. So to sum up, um, and to give maybe that like 30 second answer that I really need to practice giving, 
Looking at the history of organizations presents us with new questions. Why did the world become dominated by large organizations? The big way that historians can contribute this is by understanding organizations as not simply the state or as private companies, but as a whole, that organizations, no matter what their type, influence the other organizations around them. We can see some examples of how this blindness to the similarities of organizations as um, blocking us from seeing some of the big effects of uh, the British state in the 18th century. Furthermore, studying organizations can help us uh, make transnational history without looking at the nation. It can help with problems of selection bias. It might be able to help with the divisions between social and cultural history by offering a ground of comparison. Finally, it offers a number of intriguing research projects looking uh, cross-culturally at different ways that organizations work. Thanks very much for listening. I hope that you have enjoyed this uh, uh, particular podcast. If you like it, uh, rate us and review us on iTunes. Um, if you have a question for me, if you think that I should be able to answer it and it might show up in my orals, please tweet it at me at at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-E-A-C-H-E-R. Uh, share us with your friends. Give a big thanks to uh, Jonathan Lear, who made the music. You can check out his Bandcamp and his SoundCloud, and to Duncan Barton, who made the image. I will speak to you guys tomorrow where we're going to be wrapping up our uh, big questions about organizational psychology.